Hello, I'm Lucy Heyman and welcome back to the second of three special COVID episodes of the Elevate Music podcast in partnership with Help Musicians. Today we're talking finance and specifically how musicians have been affected. The sudden and drastic loss of income due to the initial UK lockdown and the continued uncertainty facing the live music sector has been devastating for many musicians, as well as the crews, managers and self-employed people working alongside them. While the crisis saw the income of many musicians wiped out overnight, organisations like Help Musicians and the MU launched hardship funds to provide relief to many thousands of musicians experiencing financial difficulty, and we'll hear more about those later. The financial difficulties of COVID add to an already tough financial workplace for those self-employed in music. So at the back end of last year, for example, I spent quite a bit of time in hospital, which really impacted my ability to work. So for me, the pandemic came just as I was starting to emerge from that financially. One of the guests on this episode also had that experience. Miri and I had a chat before this interview, and I was quite struck by how alike our experiences had been. And it made me wonder how many other people had been through something similar. As well as Miri, I'll be speaking to artist Lauren Housley, along with finance expert Mike Burgess, who has lots of advice on how to find extra money from royalties and how to diversify your income streams. So many musicians have fallen through the cracks of government support and the financial outlook for the industry is still uncertain. But there has been some good news recently in the form of the £1.57 billion of investment announced to protect arts venues. So I spoke to Horace Truebridge, who is the General Secretary of the Musicians' Union, to find out whether any of this money will go to the musicians who need it. To set the scene, the Musicians' Union recently conducted some research to get an idea of how musicians have been affected by the pandemic. Can you tell me a bit about the findings? We actually had 1,459 musicians respond to the survey, so it's quite robust in that respect. So 38% of them said that they don't qualify for either of the government's support schemes, you know, either the job retention scheme or the self-employed income support scheme. So that's nearly 40%, which was shocking, yeah. Uh, And even those who said that they do qualify at the time, 26% said that they would struggle to survive financially because obviously the scheme was announced in March, but the payments didn't start till June. So for a lot of people, it was really difficult. And 19%, again, this survey was was conducted at the end of March, beginning of April, and 19% of our members who responded then said that they may be forced to abandon their careers in music because of the uh, uh, pandemic. And I, if you think that that was like nearly three months ago now, I think that figure will have probably risen since then. Is there anything that can be done to prevent those musicians from leaving the sector, do you think? Well, I think that there's two things that the government should be doing. One of them is to actually provide some sector-specific finance for these musicians. You know, however you want to structure that, it, it really is just to keep these people being able to put food on the table and that kind of thing and stop them from leaving the profession. If they leave the profession, they're unlikely to come back. That's the problem. And, you know, we we have got this fantastic position on the world stage in terms of music, you know, and, it, and it, it's so valuable to the country, not just in terms of, you know, the, the culture, the money, the well-being and the, and the mental health benefits of live music. But beyond that, you know, tourism, 
the West End, you know, these things depend upon the restaurants and the bars and the hotels in the West End depend upon a thriving theatre scene. And if that starts to fall away, then the knock-on from that is going to be huge. I mean, the music industry is worth 5.2 billion a year to the economy. That's more than the motor trade. And yet there is no sector-specific bailout for us at the moment. And it's our industry that's going to take much, much longer to get back on its feet again than most other industries. The other thing that I think the government should be doing is they should be saying to live music venues and theatres and concert halls, reopen, use social distancing, and we will underwrite your events up to a break-even level. That's, you know, that seems to me to be a fair thing to do, and that will stop redundancies, it will stop theatre closures, it will stop live music venues being sold on for property developers. It will stop all of that from happening if they just underwrite the gigs until such time as, you know, we can abandon the social distancing. Because as it, as it is, social distancing makes it economically not viable to, you know, put on a musical or to bung a band in a live music venue or to put an orchestra on a stage, you know. Can you tell me a bit about the investment that the government announced for arts venues? What impact do you think it's going to have on music venues? Well, at the moment, it's difficult to say because we've not really had any detail on how the cultural fund is going to be distributed. We do know that it's targeted at organisations, institutions, theatres and music venues. And we know that the Arts Council are going to be playing a part in how that money will be distributed. But there's a great deal of detail lacking in terms of who's going to get this much and who's going to get that much, how you apply for it, how decisions will be made on those applications. It's still very much up in the air. And I think to a degree still to fight for, I hope, because uh, my major concern is that so far we've seen no suggestion from the government that any of this money will go directly to the workforce who are really suffering at the moment. Is there any clarification on when the venues will actually receive this money? Because I gather that some venues are actually closing already. No, there isn't. And that's uh, that's of considerable concern because we've pretty much reached the point whereby theatres particularly that have staff that they can't afford to pay once the furloughing scheme ends we'll have to think about the three-month consultation period around redundancy. So, in other words, some theatres are poised to have to notify their employees of the uh, impending redundancy and enter into this period of consultation. So, not knowing whether or not funds are going to be made available to the theatre in order for it to stave off those redundancies has left everybody sort of up in the air. How will this develop, do you think? What's the next step? When will you hear what the time frame is? I don't know. We've written to Oliver Dowden and we've written to the Arts Council and UK Music has done the same thing. And we really are seeking a lot more detail on on how this money is going to be distributed, who it's targeted at, and as you quite rightly say, what the time frame is, because we're in a critical stage right now. But I must emphasise the fact that my major concern is that it may help to prop up some of the lofty institutions and organisations which have got great merit in the arts world, but 
As far as I can see at the moment, none of that money is being targeted at the actual performers and creators and talent. And, and that's where the real crisis is now. We want to make sure that the National Theatre and the Albert Hall survive, but we also want to make sure that there are performers who stay in the profession long enough to go in and uh, perform in those venues too. Could you introduce our listeners to the Broken Record fixed streaming campaign and just tell me a bit about the MU's involvement in it? Well, actually, you know, this is something that I have had as a kind of personal mission for many years because streaming simply doesn't deliver enough money to the artists who create the music that everybody streams. And the pandemic has really shone a spotlight on that as an issue because you've got bands and artists who are quite well known to us if you listen to Six Music or something like that you know uh, you would know these bands you would see them on a festival bill otherwise but they've lost all their live work and their income from streaming isn't enough to pay the bills it simply isn't and so I think that there is a real moral issue here when The record labels are telling us that they're making record profits from streaming. And yet you've got musicians from bands who would perhaps charge 10 or 15,000 pounds for a festival performance, having to go cap in hand to the government for help at this time, because they're simply not seeing enough money from the record labels from streaming. And then when you think about all the back catalogue that is streamed, and is subject to contracts that were signed before streaming even existed. So nobody knew streaming was coming. That was in an age when a record label had to pay for the manufacture of the CDs or the, or the vinyl or the cassettes of their artists. They had to store them somewhere. All this costs a lot of money. They then had to transport them into the shops, which cost money. And then when the shops didn't sell them, they had to transport them back and put them back into storage. All of that happened in, in the analogue age. None of this happens now. And yet those artists are still being paid as if, they, if that was happening. So they're getting a very, very low royalty rate. So it needs a thorough public investigation. And finally, is there anything that you've seen or heard that gives you hope for the future for the sector? Well, I did hear that there's a possible production that's going to take place where the promoter is importing from South Korea testing kits which can give a result in 15 minutes. That is quite amazing. If that's reliable, then that is a game changer. That could really change things. You know, you or I could rock up to a gig and we could do the test and we'd only have to wait 15 minutes and at the end of the 15 minutes, we'd be able to go in and see the band. Our sector is very creative. So we just need all those, you know, creative minds and, you know, unharnessed imaginations to really get to grips with this and find ways in which we can bring live music to people again. Because I think people are desperate for live music. My members are desperate to work. We have to get the industry up and running again as quickly as possible. That was Horace Truebridge, and for more information on the hardship funds that are currently available for UK musicians, please take a look at the episode's show notes, where we've included plenty of links to the different initiatives that have been set up. An artist who has benefited from the hardship fund set up by Help Musicians is Miri. 
As I mentioned before, she's had a tough time with her health over the last year, but is still incredibly optimistic about the future. Can you tell me a bit about what you do and how you earn your income as an artist? Sure. So first and foremost, I'm a music artist and a songwriter. So very much earning a living from gigging, royalties. I also run workshops called Find Your Voice, uh, vocal workshops and also songwriting, just helping people to develop confidence and more kind of finding their their voice in society not necessarily like in a in a very technical type of way I do other work within music and mental health so I'm on the well-being team for Girls Rock London and I also do music mentoring so yeah like first and foremost I'm an artist but within that I do a lot of other stuff that I'm very passionate about and also as well running live music events for just under nine years my friend and I were running monthly live music events called Blue Monday created for LBTQ women and allies and that led to us also doing 10 sold out shows with Green Note called Girls to the Front which was about bringing female musicians to the forefront and working towards more equality on the gig circuit. So how has all of that been affected by the pandemic? Well, definitely the gigging, that's major. And I did have a lot of projects cancelled because of the pandemic, like workshops. I was meant to perform in Trafalgar Square as well for the Mayor of London, and that was understandably cancelled. I was in hospital end of last September and uh, wasn't able to work properly for about two months but I feel only have fully recovered since maybe end of February I, I kind of was a little bit used to you know not not being able to do anything so I felt like I was kind of building things back up, got the gig with with the Mayor of London, securing various workshops and other music opportunities. And then the lockdown happened and yeah, just everything, everything changed. So financially, I was very lucky because I was able to get some emergency funding from help musicians. I applied for universal credit, but that takes five weeks to actually come through and applying for for help musicians UK emergency funding that really just helped on so many levels because I felt so stressed I'm very lucky that I'm still able to do some work for a youth charity like music mentoring but that wouldn't be enough to sort of buy food and cover all my bills and, and what have you so getting that money that emergency fund I think it was something like maybe I applied on on a Tuesday late evening when I first heard about it and then received the funding. It was either the next day or the Thursday. And suddenly I just felt relief because it gave me that space to to be able to look ahead and kind of get myself in a headspace to to work out, okay, where do I go from here? How can I adapt in the situation that we are to to kind of make a living and keep afloat during the pandemic. And I know you said that you were able to still do a little bit of work for one of the charities that you work for. Is there anything hopeful that you're seeing for the future about ways of being able to like monetize what you're doing in terms of like maybe digital gigs or is there anything that you've seen that 
that gives you hope about your income streams for the future at the moment? Definitely. I mean, when lockdown initially happened and, you know, the shock of it all, and which I think is important to process, and the kind of sadness of, you know, seeing work that you've worked hard to secure you know just kind of be cancelled but then out of the blue I got a support gig with Frank Turner I also did a gig for it was like the artist self-esteem she was putting on an online festival on Instagram to raise money for for Women's Aid UK and I ended up performing for that and you know I've also been able to do some online gigs on my Facebook live so I'm exploring a way to be able to to do that via zoom and and you know make it more kind of private so that people actually pay, whether it's like a fiver or something people actually pay to see you instead of just relying on kind of the virtual tip jar and also workshops I'm noticing that a lot of charities are finding ways to to adapt and and do stuff online so I definitely feel hopeful and I feel like as an artist as well it's kind of you know there's other ways like from sync from collaborating with people just to to get music heard and building up your royalties and merchandise as well which is another thing that I'm basically going to be rebranding sorting out a new logo and then selling my merch online and that's another source of income really you know not necessarily with it just saying miri but taglines and stuff that can appeal to anybody and then you know building up your brand so in a way it's given that kind of space to to look at where i'm at look at where i've come from and say right how can I move forward how can I elevate and I definitely have learned that there have been opportunities that have come my way that and even people within the the music circuit or the music industry that I've met that I wouldn't have necessarily um, met before lockdown and people who kind of want to help because they've got the time so I've had conversations with various people in the music industry who if I would have met them you know at a music event exchange details we wouldn't necessarily be having a chat or they wouldn't be saying oh well you know give me a call let's talk let me see how I can help so I do think as humans we can adapt we can adapt but I do feel again I've been very very lucky and I'm very grateful for getting that that funding with help musicians and I've also secured some funding with Arts Council which will allow me to purchase some equipment so I can record vocals from home and that as well can open doors to other opportunities for me to kind of monetize my creativity. Is there anything else that you've done during this time that's been quite a positive thing for you that you want to take forward after the pandemic's over? I think I've learned that I'm a bit of a recluse <laughs> and that that's okay. Again, I think people expect if you're like an artist and a creative that you want to be out partying all the time. And I love being around people and I'm definitely a people person. But I've learned as well that it's that for me, it's definitely that balance. I like my own space and my own time to sort of rejuvenate. And I think knowing that I don't have to be busy 24 7 to achieve what 
I want to achieve. And I think that's another thing that's put on artists, like you have to be on it 24-7. And I don't personally feel that's healthy. For me, definitely having, I guess, a type of discipline to say, you know what, today is a day, just rest, switch off your emails and you can go back to it tomorrow. That was Miri, and you can buy her music and merchandise at her Bandcamp page, which can be found at miriofficial.bandcamp.com. Up next is my conversation with artist Lauren Housley, who has turned to live streaming concerts from her living room as an alternative source of income. Lauren, could you tell me a little bit about how this whole period unfolded for you? It took a while to sink in, really, for me. The emails and the texts started rolling in. This gig's been cancelled and this show's been cancelled. And then it starts dawning on you, how long is this going to last? And then things in May started getting cancelled. Things in June start get cancelled. And then before you know it, you literally have an empty diary, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. I've been playing and making a living out of performing live for the past... 12 years so obviously I went into a little bit of panic mode and you just kind of start just racking your brains of all the different things you could do to earn some income because I'm guessing a lot of musicians are in the exact same position as me where we're very reliant on the live income but it's basically vital for survival in the industry for a lot of people. Was that something that came quite quickly, that kind of creative problem solving approach? Or did you go through a period initially of of sort of thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? How quickly did you respond to that? In all honesty, it took me about two or three weeks to actually like start start being productive and start thinking of anything I could do that was going to be proactive and I guess bring some kind of positivity to the whole situation. I just wanted to connect with people again. I guess I was missing that. My husband, he's a full-time musician as well, and he he kind of reacted in the opposite way. He he just went straight into work mode, and I've already got an album like ready. So I'd already recorded my album, and it still needed mixed in and mastering, but it was actually finished recording-wise. So I have a studio that I built specifically to record this album really and also a couple of other people have used it as well but the night that lockdown happened I had a little discussion with my husband and we were like what are we gonna do if we can't go to the studio and we need to finish the record and we just decided there and then on the spot just before it was announced literally hours before it was announced that we were going to move as much as we could from the studio into our little flat in Sheffield <laughs> So we just kind of just did it that night and then it got announced that that was lockdown and that was it. So um, that was definitely a good move and it it kind of allowed, my my husband was going to mix it anyway, but he was struggling to find the time to do it. And obviously his schedule's completely changed now. So he he sat down for those three weeks where I was freaking out and he (laughs) mixed the album. So you said you were thinking about creative problem solving ways to deal with this issue, you know, all your gigs being cancelled. Can you tell me about the process of that and what you came up with? I think the number one thing for me was I'm so used to playing live and it's something that I've done, like like I said, constantly, not just to earn a living, but just for my own sort of sanity and, um, and creativity. I've been doing it for such a long time regularly, never taking a break actually. It just felt very strange to be not performing and not singing and not connecting with people in that way. So after my three weeks of meltdown, 
obviously a lot of people had just gone straight into doing a lot of live streams and and obviously I was watching them and and that was great and I was thinking oh maybe it was something that we could do um, from the flat I wanted to try and make it as high sort of quality as possible just because it is frustrating sometimes when you're watching them and the quality is not great or the internet's not great I'm really lucky actually because where we actually live we've got really great internet so that was a bonus but yeah I just started thinking oh I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing something regular because at least then I know what day of the week it is (laughs) because it does just start to melt into one didn't it I think everyone said that it was really weird not knowing what day it was and um, and then I thought a lot of people are doing things on the weekend and that's kind of taken up by people putting on like, like quite energetic gigs I guess on a Friday and Saturday night I've got some friends doing some great streams on the weekend and I thought oh maybe we'll, maybe I'll do something a little bit more chilled out but midweek on a Tuesday and the, and the idea just came and, and it came really fast and sometimes I overthink these things but I think in this situation it was just I want to crack on with this like ASAP so I just put the post out on my Facebook I'm going to start doing a regular weekly live stream on a Tuesday night it's called Tuesday Night Live and yeah I want you to tell me what you would like to hear music wise so I'm going to play some stuff from the back catalogue I'm going to introduce you to a new song from my upcoming album every week because I should have been doing that on my acoustic tour in May that got cancelled and feel free to send requests and any shout outs to anybody that you're missing and let's just kind of join together and see what happens and it it started out uh, we were filming it on the phone and well we were going out live on the phone sorry but we did have the studio set up for for the high quality audio so that was great that's that seemed to work really nicely but then I do actually have um a lot of filming equipment as well so it was just figuring out how that was going to work and how we were going to hook that up and then just diving down this rabbit hole of how good can we actually make it sound and look for people and then it it's eventually turned into a bit of a kind of a tv show (laughs) one thing I found really interesting about your story is how you've actually managed to make it work financially for you could you tell me a bit about that I do it as a donation pot, so I just just use a PayPal link, and people people don't have to donate; they can watch it for free. Um, but a lot of people do donate, and I think that kind of changes every week depending on you know who's who's watching it, and people can put in whatever they want. But I think a lot of people do recognise that they are still getting you know entertainment, and they want it to continue. And I think people are starting to get their head around the fact that musicians need to be earning to continue in what they're doing and I think it's become very apparent that people sometimes do take music and um, musicians for granted in some ways I I think in like these sort of emergency situations where organizations want to raise money the first thing that happens is that musicians get asked to do things for free which is absolutely fine and and I and I do that myself but we can't do everything for free and I think people are starting to realize that so there's been a lot of generosity with the tip bucket the online tip bucket but then I also had an idea to just create some merchandise around it so I've done some t-shirts up to now and um I've done two different styles of t-shirt which are actually nearly sold out now so the regular people that have been tuning in have been buying them and now wear them every week when they tune into the show and and that's been cool as well because I just feel like it's kind of brought 
my community of listeners from all over the world together more. That's amazing. Yeah. And has that been a viable income stream? It's been enough to sort of keep things ticking over, I guess. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not playing to thousands at the minute. At, at the minute, on average, there's probably about 100 to 150 people tuning in every week. But those people seem to tune in and stay for the whole episode. And then obviously the people, there's a few people who might come and go. But it does feel like quite an invested audience, which is really nice. And just from a financial perspective, can you tell me about, as a musician, the income of, say, Bandcamp as compared to Spotify, how that affects you? I'm a big fan of Bandcamp. I've been doing Bandcamp, well, I used Bandcamp for my first album. I think it's 10% that they take, generally. That's for downloads, I think. But everything else financially goes straight to the artist, whereas Spotify, I think it's great for building up profile, but financially, it's not worked for me yet. And so this has obviously been like an incredibly tough time, but is there anything from this period that you will take forward into your career in the future? I want to continue with the online streaming and the online sort of connection. I really, I really was quite, not dismissive, but I just didn't quite understand the value of it before because I, I love playing live and for so many reasons, really. But it's really opened my eyes to like being able to reach so many people from all over the world. I know that sounds really silly because that's what the internet does and that's been happening for years. But me personally, as an artist, I just not really taken to, to social media the way that I have since lockdown. And I'm now actually like able to use it as like a really positive tool as an artist. So yeah, I definitely want to take that forward. That was Lauren and you can buy her music at laurenhousley.bandcamp.com. We'd also like to congratulate Lauren on the birth of her baby boy Noah, who was born just after this episode was recorded. If you've been able to find different ways of making money through your music, let us know at elevatemusicpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at elevatemusicpod. So royalties can be a vital source of income for musicians, but are you making the most of yours? I spoke to Mike Burgess, founder of Sound With Mike, who had some advice. What other ways can musicians boost their income at the moment? Well, it's going to come down to, you know, who is that artist? What, what's their setup? You know, are they signed to a label? Are they independent? What's, what's their kind of scenario? I mean, I think you know, much of the work that I've been doing around helping people find missing money or, you know, money that's not been paid out. So I think, you know, I've been saying to people, if you have a publishing deal, you really need to be stepping on your publisher's toes at the moment saying, look, you know, I'm really desperate. Cash flow's dried up. Do stay on top of them. Do make sure that those live performances that you've asked them to register on your behalf from earlier in the year and, and certainly also the back end of last year, they've actually been paid, you know, by the collection societies because... I think with all due respect to anybody that does have a publishing deal and they do have a proactive publisher who is asking for that data, there is an assumption, quite rightly so, there is an assumption that that work is being done and that that money is coming in. And if the artist or the, the songwriter in this case isn't scrutinising their royalty statements, whether from the publisher and or from the collection society that they're with, then it's quite easy just to think, all right, it, it's been paid, hasn't it? Of course it has. And I, I'm sort of saying, well, we have the time to take stock of the situation. And I think just 
have a bit of a look at that and go, well, hang on a sec, I did a run of shows at the back end of 2019. I wonder if I ever got paid, you know, maybe if you're a self-published writer and you're not with a publisher, you know, just go back and have a look at your PRS live performance submission. Horace spoke earlier about how streaming doesn't pay artists fairly. I know Lauren mentioned Bandcamp. Have you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, I'm a big advocate of Bandcamp. I think, you know, that direct-to-consumer market is absolutely vital. I think if anybody's going to really want to be here long term as an artist, that they've got to look at capitalising on that sort of direct-to-fan band camp type platforms and you know if you're creating bundles that are affordable of merch with music i think that is the way to go and a quick other point to make is in respect of a kind of fairer system i would very much like to see and i'm aware that this is kind of part of the broken record philosophy is that what you've got to understand is most members of the public who are day-to-day music fans they don't understand that the money that they pay that 9.99 a month is not equally split amongst the artists that they listen to and i think there has to be far better education around you know whether it's the bpi whether it's the mu whether it's Featured Arts Coalition, whoever it is, there needs to be, and I believe there needs to be an industry-wide approach to educating the public around that matter in particular. Because I think if the public understood better that that 9.99 a month is not being equally divvied up to the people whose music that they really love consuming, they might kind of think slightly differently about that. And I think that that's a really vital education tool to look at in the same way we should have done at the time of the file sharing boom in the early 2000s. We should have educated the public around how difficult it was then to be an artist at that time. Miri mentioned that she's looking at getting some income from Sync. If you were an independent artist and this is something that you were interested in, like how would you even go about beginning to get your music put into films and adverts? So much of this does come down to your network and who you know. And as we know, in most areas of life, you know, whether you are selling your house and you need a property consultant or a lawyer or whatever it is, or you're buying a secondhand car and you want to know that you're not buying something that the engine's going to fall out of as you drive it away from someone's house. You know, it's so much of that thing of going, well, who do I know in my network? Who has that expertise? Who has those connections? So I think that's first and foremost important. Now, appreciating that perhaps a lot of independent artists who are operating on a DIY level, maybe they don't have, you know, relationships with publishers, relationships with music supervisors, sync agents, etc. I mean, one of the things I've been saying a lot recently, certainly since the beginning of COVID, is I don't think there's been a better time in life, or certainly in my time and in the music industry, to be connecting with people that you otherwise wouldn't have any reason to connect with. I'm very much of the opinion that... Certainly when COVID hit, and I think to a degree still now, there are a lot of people sitting around who've been furloughed. There are a lot of people sitting around with not a great deal of stuff to do day to day. Or if they are, they're working from home, they've figured out a bit more of a way of balancing their time. And, and actually maybe they, they do have a bit more time to read unsolicited emails and to read communication that they might otherwise just go, report to spam, haven't got time for this, goodbye. And that sort of slightly more day-to-day impatient tone that the music industry has, I think has somewhat been dialed down a bit. And I think, you know, I'm certainly, you know, I mean, granted, I try and read everything that I get sent, but I can't always engage with everything. But I definitely think even in my time over COVID, I've been a bit more kind of engaged. Like anything in life, you need to be as informed as possible when you go into it. 
you know, as I said, whether it's renting a property, buying a car, you know, by going on a holiday, whatever it is, we do our research in those instances to determine that spending that money or that time or that energy is worthwhile. So I think so much of it is about going, well, okay, you know, who are the five or six artists doing a similar thing to me at the moment in a similar space musically? You know, are they getting any syncs? If so, on what kind of programs? You know, okay, well, let's Google music supervisor made in Chelsea and see if we find someone's Twitter profile or their Insta page or whatever it is. Because most people in this industry, they do tend to have their job description in their, in their bio. So it's often Google will find that person. And again, it might just be that thing of shooting them a message saying, hey, would it be possible to grab your email? I've got some music that might be really up your street. Um, I noticed that you've recently supported X, Y and Z. Just so it shows that you've done your research and it's not just completely out of the blue. So I think there's, there's that just kind of organic research communication, using your network, using the tools available to search. And then I think there's the other side of it, which is looking at what are the small publishing companies that exist? Who are the smaller music supervisors? Who are the sync agents that just do sync and perhaps don't do publishing administration? You know, and that might be just going, you know, chances are, you know, you're going to Google unsigned songwriter, music industry, publishing company, and Centric are going to pop up, you know, or somebody like that, you know. And again, Centric provide a great service for unsigned songwriters who are looking to further their career. And again, if you build a relationship with your liaison at Centric, then you will build a relationship where every time, you know, you upload music to their system, hopefully that person will check it out. Obviously, right now, the situation isn't looking particularly positive for the industry. Is there anything in your work that you've seen that gives you hope for the future? Yes, I mean, I'm very much a glass half full kind of person anyway. And I try and advocate that in the people I work with and and generally try and remain cautiously optimistic about most things. You know, I do think that at a time like now, innovation is very, very important. Whether that's looking at trying to create very cheap to produce, cheap to sell merch, you know, that might be sticker packs, badges, cigarette lighters, items that aren't really going to create a a consumer to really think, oh, that's expensive. I don't want to spend 25 quid on a t-shirt, but I will spend three or four quid on a small item, you know. So I think it's about looking looking at the market and going, okay, you know, maybe it's about having some cheaper physical items to sell. You know, obviously crowdfunding models still aren't a bad way of doing doing things at the moment. I got a link this morning from a musician that I've helped on numerous occasions over the last couple of years. He set up a GoFundMe kind of career development sort of page where he's just moved to London from Manchester and he's saying... For hey, friends and family, you know, extended friends and family, you know, would you put 10 quid in the pot to help me? This is what I'm trying to do. He's kind of made it really personable, really kind of interesting. And I think people generally, you know, as I said, I think generally speaking, people are good and they want to help. And I think if you're not asking them for a colossal amount of money at this time and that they can see that that's really going to help somebody in in a difficult situation people will help. And yes, people have got less money to spend. Yes, people might give it a second thought before they do donate. But I do think that that art of asking is still important. And I appreciate not everybody feels comfortable doing that. And I speak to people on a daily basis who don't love the idea of doing it. But I do think that the art of asking is still very important. And as I said, if you combine that with some some innovative ways of thinking, some innovative ways of putting product to market, then I think I'm very optimistic about the future. Thank you to Horace, Miri, Lauren and Mike for speaking to me. I'm going to head over to PRS and PPL to check that everything is registered properly. So that was great advice, Mike. 
In next week's episode, we'll be talking to musicians Mike Christie from G4 and Rick Leon James on how the pandemic has affected their careers and what they have planned for the future. Psychotherapist Whitney Schowler shares some advice on how best to deal with uncertainty. And finally, we welcome James Ainsco, CEO of Help Musicians, who discusses the future of support for musicians. If you would like to find out more about my research and work, have a look at lucyhayman.com. And don't forget, you can follow the podcast on social media at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You've been listening to the Elevate Music Podcast with me, Lucy Heyman, in partnership with Help Musicians, an independent charity which provides essential and enduring support to make a meaningful difference to the lives of professional musicians. Visit helpmusicians.org.uk to learn more about the support they offer.